Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Here on the show, we attempt to find universal ideas in stories all around us, whether old or new, in every medium, and in any genre. In so doing, we hope to participate in a great conversation alongside our favorite authors and artists across the ages about the stuff of life, man's frailty and glory, his muck and his marvel, his faith and his doubt. In this season, the Center for Lit crew frames that conversation through nine simple yet powerful questions that sit at the foundations of all thoughtful human discourse. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey friends, welcome back to Bibliophiles. Today, you guys, we have done it. Behold, we have put an entire season's worth of episodes in the can discussing all of these grand questions. And I want to take a minute today to do a little retrospecting about all of this and maybe also just talk about what we're currently reading and just kind of kibitz a little bit with a little little or no real structure. How does that sound, everybody? Sounds great. Love it. I love it, too. I love it, too. So the, obviously what we've been doing is taking up one important question per episode as we've gone along. And one of the implications, it seems to me, that we can draw from the season is that we're making a statement together collectively about art and about the nature of art. And, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like what we're saying or implying heavily, at least, is that good art in any medium is organized around the asking and answering of universal questions. That might sound like a fairly simplistic way to characterize the conversation, but nevertheless, I think it's true. So I guess where I want to jump in today is how can, if we take, if we, if we zoom out to a big 30,000 foot view of all these things we've been talking about, how does an understanding of this principle, this way of looking at art, change a person as a reader and considerer and culture participator? And what sort of a, what sort of a thinker can you become if you take this principle about what art is and what it's for to heart? Or maybe another way to put it is what kind of attitude defines a an art appreciator from our perspective. Well, it, that's an interesting way to put it. If you, if you take the questions that we've been tossing back and forth as, you know, questions like the nature of God, the problem of pain, what's a good life, what's a good death. If you take those as the, uh, the thing that makes art, what it is, the fact that it is asking those questions, then you sort of draw a, a, the connection between the artist and the observer very, very closely and bring the observer into a close relationship with the artist because of the fact that those questions are universal and they apply as well to the observer as to the artist. The artist is asking a universal question, but he's not, uh, he's not uh, particularly more qualified to ask it than the person that's going to be reading his book or the person that's looking at his painting or the person that's listening to his symphony. Because art isn't necessarily for, for preaching or, or making a, giving an answer. Right. It's for asking a point right. Of question. And so if, if the eternal question, the universal question is the, is the central thing in a work of art, then the artist and the audience are standing on the same ground in a profound way. And so I think maybe one answer to your question is it elevates the observer to the role of, of, even fellow artist, co-artist, co-asker hmm. of the question. Maybe the artist isn't saying, here's my fantastically talented representation of this problem. And you pee on, you know, be odd. By yeah. it. But instead he's saying, <laughs> hey, be, you pee on. Yeah, be he's saying, odd. hey, I've got this question. Don't we all? And the observer says, yes, 
We all do. And thanks for bringing it to my attention. This question is burning in my own heart too. I may not have been as adept at articulating it as you are, but now that I see the way you put it, I see that we are brothers and we stand on the same ground. Well, even I think it works the other way around too when you're talking about what a good artist is because a good artist is not necessarily someone who can say something in the most erudite, sophisticated way. In fact, I think, Dad, you told me once upon a time that a good artist is someone who can say something powerful and profound in a very simple way, mm. in a way that even even a kid could comprehend, make something profound and, and really significant accessible. wonder if it's two sides of the same coin. Trying to build, like good art builds a bridge between the artist and the reader and makes them come into relationship with one another. Yeah, I think that's that's exa exactly what I was getting at. And and that sounds maybe on the surface like a like an apology for broad art, like an apology for the Broadway musical as opposed to the classical symphony. But but I think maybe uh, well maybe it is. I, I mean I talked recently about a fiddler on the roof as one of the great artistic statements about the nature of love, right? And it couldn't be broader, but I argued at the time also couldn't be more profound. But I do think that, uh, that, uh, a modicum of education about artistic languages, music and literature and sculpture allows that common ground to happen at a higher level. But I don't think that takes away from the fact that what you just said, Megan is really true. That great art builds a bridge. Yeah. I was thinking too, hmm. that, um, in addition to building a bridge, it, it, the artist does such a, he does such a service for us because he sees things that are common to all of us to the extent that he's writing something that's going to last. He sees things that is common to, to humanity, but gives voice to them in a fresh way mm -hmm. that helps us to understand our own experience better. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know how to, how to say that differently. But that, that's what I'm thinking about, that, that the true appreciator of, of art is able to take advantage of the multitude of eyes mm. that are available to us in literature and to absorb those, those opportunities to um, name their own experience by uh, connecting with other people's experiences, mm -hmm. whether they're figurative, um, imaginary experiences or whatever. Because even when somebody's writing um, fiction, they're writing from their own experience to some extent, um, their own experience with human nature, at least, you know, but you write what you know. Yeah. So whenever you walk into an, into somebody else's story, whether it's a, a true story or a fictional story, they're giving you a great gift, a vision, right? That's really good. I like that. It, it, it makes me think about the fact that it's easy, it's easy to frame this conversation as, okay, we have the answers. Here they are. There's not that many of them. And it, as long as you can identify the great question that is at issue in a book, you can have the right answer in reading it well. And congratulations, you've joined the in crowd. But what you just said pushes back on that idea a little bit because we're not talking about the viewing of art as an echo chamber where you will find yourself every time you go to it. We're talking instead about claiming other viewpoints and that, it, that it's actually incremental and it builds and builds and builds. The more perspectives we avail ourselves of, the clearer our own sight becomes. And that's a, that's a powerful idea. The fact that the art is about questions more than it is about answers makes it less threatening as well. The answers mm. that it does provide, because the questions are, are really what's going on and the examples they provide and their stories, the meat that we have to chew on in our thinking 
uh, that's that's just exactly what it is. It's it's something to think about. It's additional perspectives to consider, but they don't have to threaten us because they're fodder for considering the questions, not yeah. propaganda. I was I was thinking about that as you were saying it, and the idea of a question being a threat. I don't think that we are often threatened by classics because they're so far removed from us. Mm. You can kind of hold them at arm's length, and you can say, "Well, once upon a time, a hundred years ago, somebody said this thing, and whether I agree with it or not, it's so far away; it doesn't really matter." And you can kind of philosophize about a classic in a way that contemporary literature is very threatening to us. And I wonder, I wonder why that is. Because it's the same, if we go with this idea, it's the same conversation, the same kinds of questions. If, if we at Center for Lit are right, it's the same universal questions being kicked around today as they were, you know, 100 years ago. But somehow the artists today are threatening to us. Because it's so much of what we're reading today is highly politicized you know, that the lines are really, because it's our own time. I imagine that um, when Dante was writing, the people that were reading his work um, responded like we do oh, totally. today to our yeah, own absolutely. period. You know, that it was actually arguably even more explicit. He was putting actual names and faces well, yeah. on the people in hell. Yeah. He was exiled, <laughs> right? Because of his, his falling on the wrong side of the political spectrum. He got kicked out of, of his hometown and never went back. I mean, it was highly politicized. The reason I think that it doesn't affect us the same way today is because there is a remove. I mean, we read about his stuff and the white gulfs and the black gulfs and the whatever, you know, we're like, well, what are the gulfs? <laughs> None of that means anything to us. So we're not, we're not threatened. I've studied Dante and doesn't, still doesn't mean anything to me. I don't remember that part. <laughs> yeah. But what I heard you saying a minute ago, Emily, is that we don't need to be threatened by these questions. Do you think that applies even to those modern contemporaries of ours who are writing today? And even pop culture. I, mm. I think thinking in this framework through the lens of universal questions, being able to see past the, the moment, the moment questions, yeah. um, it, it it makes it fun to view pop culture mm-hmm. because I get really excited when I watch a garbage TV show and see, <laughs> oh my goodness, they, yes, like this is silly and inter- it's for my entertainment. However, they're, they're asking the same kinds of questions that Shakespeare and Dickens and all the greats ask. They're, it, humans are still humans. We're still obsessed by the same questions. Like The Good That's- Place with Kristen Bell. Right, so exactly. profound. The questions being asked in that show are awesome and universal. Well, then even even when they supply an answer, and oftentimes they do that that I don't necessarily agree with. Sometimes the way that they framed the question um, is so thought provoking that it's more important than the answer that they've provided. You know, oh yeah, the, the the story becomes worthy not because I think they've come up with the right answer, but because of the way that they framed the question. I think that's what Emily was getting at. That the the this frame when you say this framework, you mean the framework of the questions are primary. That's what art is about. It's about framing the question, and the best artists frame the questions most eloquently and in the most compelling ways. That makes me think again of that C.S. Lewis quote: um, "Friendship is born in that moment where you look at another person and say, what, you too? I thought I was the only one.' I think." What we what we uh, experience the most kinship is in the asking of a good question. You wonder that too. I thought I was the only one. Or you're worried about that thing as well. You have a, a question that's full of fear in your heart. Me too. I'm so glad to know that I'm not the only one who feels this way. And I think, I don't know, maybe that's what it is. There's a friendship in asking these questions. 
and you can be friends with, you know, the classical artists, but also maybe even more importantly, the artists of today who you could still interact with. Well, and I, I remember reading an essay by Clifton Fadiman, and he suggested that... Now, there's a name, yeah, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. Oh, yes. He suggested that sometimes we learn more from what he termed a bad book than from a good book. He was coming, obviously coming against the idea that there are good books and bad books, and we should only ever choose the good ones, that is, those that we agree with. <laughs> and he, he was suggesting that sometimes you just learn so much more from a book that, that differs from your perspective than you could from, from one that, um, that, you know, toes the party line, so to speak, and speaks to what you already agree with. Um, and I think that is because they frame the question slightly differently or, you know, even if it's something that is that the world agrees with you and, and that, that, that time has told that that person had the wrong answer mm -hmm. for sure. Even then there's merit in reading what they said because human nature doesn't change and we fall into the same error cyclically, right? All human beings are prone to error and, that means even the really, really intelligent, articulate ones. And to see that writ large over the pages of literature is just as, as helpful to us as to, to see someone articulate the answers that we would hope we would find. That's good. That's really good. So it, it brings me to another question, though, and maybe this is a refocusing of the initial question. We haven't talked a lot yet, then, about the attitude of the, of the reader, which I think is one of the things we're on about around here. And there's a lot of talk going on about distance. We, um, it's easier in, I don't remember, maybe it was Emily who was saying, it's easier sometimes to consider a classic work because it's far, it's far from us. Things that would have been politically offensive aren't anymore because we don't live in that time period, et cetera, et cetera. But then we're also talking about the ways in which art is really for eliminating that distance and allowing you to sidle up next to somebody and tap them on the shoulder and say, what do you think? So I think all of that boils down into a question about the attitude of the, of the reader. Are we out in search of answers? Are we to engage the reading or the viewing or the culture participating process as a never ending search for the right and the true? Or is there, is there something more about wonder in it? Great question. Uh, the, yeah. um, I think it's really important to have that conversation and to suggest that the best stance of a reader, of a participator, of an, a consumer of art is to be on the lookout for the good questions, to be on the lookout for the good conversations. I was, I just finished reading um, Kazuo Ishiguro's The Buried Giant, a 2015 mm. novel by the Nobel Prize winner who wrote um, The Remains of the Day and Never Let Me Go. Yeah, you're on an Ishiguro kick. Everyone who begins <laughs> will end up on an Ishiguro kick. Yeah, I'm totally reading it next. I just finished reading <laughs> Never awesome. Let Me Go. This is a true talent. And I'm late to the game on issue girl. So I'm trying to catch up, but um, in the Barry giant, what he's done is raise a question that is at this at once relevant to the modern era and also obviously universal. And it's the question of, of memory about how important it is to remember our past and what do we risk by forgetting it? Mm -hmm. And also, what do we risk by holding on to it and by living in light of what has gone before? And the applications to current current politics, to recent American history, to uh, midterm history are just obvious. But um, he never goes to uh, making those connections explicit. He leaves it in the form of the the generic question. Mm -hmm. And so it enables you to apply it to your own thinking, that question, apply it to your own thinking on your own 
and take his story, which is also a great fantasy novel, to take his story as an invitation to ponder. And Mm. I really don't think there's a higher purpose for art. The invitation to ponder something important. And it's not that the answer to his questions isn't important. It absolutely is. And it's, but, but he's asked the question in such a way. How important is it to hold on to our memories? Is there such a thing as love, human love, in the absence of memory? What a great question. And you know, he doesn't come down on one side or the other. There's arguments for both sides. I mean, just to, to make, to be specific, is it possible to be in love with someone if you can't remember what you've done with them in the last 20 years? Mm-hmm. I hope so. On the other hand, maybe not. Let's think about that. And what if, what if you suddenly remember from 20 years ago, whereas you had forgotten before and you remember horrible things? Oh no. Does that destroy everything? He's not answering those questions. He's just saying, Thinking about how your memories of the past affect your present is probably something that thinking people ought to do. Wow. Dang. Well, it's an interesting thing because he's asking those same kinds of questions in Never Let Me Go. And with, the, I think, the same um, end game in mind and combining them with the idea of what is a human being. Yeah. So in in The Buried Giant, the issue is love. Love certainly is on the table in Never Let Me Go, too. But it's all to talk about the nature of being human. What does it mean to be human? Right. So in other words, a specific question, but f- but framed in in the in the framework of an invitation to ponder something mm-hmm. universal. Yeah. So I guess what I was saying is that I think the stance of the consumer of art towards art ought to be one of accepting the invitation to ponder. I just I don't think that's just a private benefit, although it certainly is. We absolutely as individuals need to uh, ponder. But I just finished reading Fahrenheit 451 uh, for some grad work. And in the discussion I participated in, we talked we had this fabulous discussion about how the best part of that story is that by the end, it's the people who are becoming the books and how they the books themselves are not the end it's the fact that the people become them and it gives them a path for entering into community with one another and uh, i think it um books provide books and art and pop culture and all of it provides the content for us to really relate to one another and an odd sort of way. Well, there has to be something for us to, to talk about. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, they have to be connected to those universal questions. Otherwise it becomes shallow yes. again. We can't just talk about the things themselves. We, we have to talk about the meanings of the things, mm-hmm. but, but it's really the art that provides that mode for relationship. Agree. That's so interesting. It reminds me of a, of a college discussion that we had that was, well, it was led by a Greek Orthodox professor. And it was on iconography and it was super duper interesting and a little opaque and smoky and it's kind of smelled like incense, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but man, it was a fun conversation. And what he ends up claiming is that all, all art is stands as an icon to a large, a larger meaning behind that work of art. And that in looking at the best art, you're looking through a lens at at some large, important idea. But then he takes it further and says, actually, all things in the world are icons to meaning because you have a finite mind instead of an infinite one. And so you actually can't access um, any of, of the truth, capital T, 
except um, via iconography. Right. I would add to add to my comment. It isn't just art or music or books. It's gardening and right. automobiles and you know what have you. Whatever your interest, it can be tied back to these to these questions. They just have to be interconnected. It's that framework that that gives meaning and I think is not just the path to personal reflection but also to Community. relationship. Yeah, I think you're right. And 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 to go back to the idea of distance for a second, um, in that case, um, you have no choice but to talk about yourself as well as the other person, which is tricky business. I mean, I think we're instructed and in just by the norms of good behavior to to talk enough about me. What about you, right? But but actually, <laughs> it's completely essential to participate as an artist would in the conversation because you're volunteering your own eyes to the person standing next to you, and that is an act of great charity because it involves opening yourself up, opening your own kimono, and saying. This is the flawed, cracked, destroyed, broken way that I see. And maybe if we combine our eyes, we'll see better. And that's a that can enforce distance and it can close it. And you don't have control over which one of those is going to happen. And so it's a chancy proposition. And I think that's why conversations about art like this are often fraught. We want to go out in search of truth to champion. And we want to find a hill to, to die on. We invariably, once ha having done so, we invariably confuse that hill with ourselves, right? And and defend it with with a level of of aggression that only comes in self defense. So I don't know. I think as we chew on, as we chew on all these great questions and start to define the position of a real art appreciator, I'm starting to think it has way less to do with with truth than it does with pondering, like you said, Dad. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so. I'm just going to be a gadfly for a minute and you were talking <laughs> that. I thought you might. Yeah, because I don't disagree with you. I actually agree with you. But I can hear in my mind um, an echo of a professor saying to me, the mind was meant to close on something, right? That, that you're suggesting a very open-minded stance, right? Where we, we greet everything that comes uh, across our path, artistically speaking, as a brother, and even if it's a brother that we disagree with, we embrace them, we kiss them, we give them our ear, we take what they say deep into our hearts and ponder it and then go, hmm, and move on. But, but ultimately, truth is a very important thing. And not everything uttered in, within the pages of, of a book is truth. So there's got to be a sifting somewhere, right? So how do we do that sifting without, without doing violence to art appreciation? I, I mean, that's a, question. that's a great question and one that we've, uh, we've trod out, I mean, innumerable times on this podcast. Um, <laughs> and I think we all agree that, you, that the listening comes first and the responding happens secondarily. But you, you should never skip that second part. You have to do it, right? That's part of being a thinking person and being a possession of your own mind is, is hearing. But, but that, the hearing is so important and it's often skipped because it requires bravery. Like I was just saying, it requires all sorts of bravery and all kinds of humility to stop talking long enough to hear something. And, um, and so I, I don't disagree with you that truth is important, but I would also say that in the truest works outside of divinely inspired scripture, in the truest works that there are, not every word of them is true, right? You're going to have to actually, in order to come to any truth at all, you're going to have to digest falsehood. And so I don't know that, um, that a description of the reading process that begins with you're entering this book to find out the parts that are true is actually going to lead anywhere. But at the same time, I think that we want to be readers whose minds are awake and who are, who are listening closely enough 
that they can tell when when real questioning has moved on into an answer they don't agree with. And we're individuals as readers. And we can say, and I will go this far and no further. I am listening to you. I am acknowledging the question that you've that you have asked. And now you're answering it. And I don't agree with you. And if you have a bad taste in your mouth, spit it out. Of course. You know? Agreed. Well, I think so. This actually takes us into what maybe is our next segment. I want to do some what are we readings and leave our leave our listeners with some recommendations or maybe some warnings as the case may be. I, and I just, I just had the experience you described, Megan, of reading a book and thinking, ah, this is a bad taste. Um, and it was called uh, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. It's the book that I Ooh, just okay. read. okay. I've heard of this yeah. one. I can't remember the author's name off the top of my head. Shab? Is it Shab? Like yeah, v, yeah, V-E or V-W v. Shab. Or V-E Shab, I think. Um, anyway, it's, it is a, to give a quick précis of the setup, it is a story about a girl in early 1700s in France who's given away in an arranged marriage. And on the night of the wedding, um, terrified of losing her independence, she draws up a deal with the devil. And in, in exchange, in exchange <laughs> for, a, for a life, an eternal life of freedom from all entanglements and the ability to live forever, she says, you can have my soul when I'm done with it, when I get tired out and, and all and, and have wrung all of the joy that there is to have out of the world of experience. You can have my soul. And he says, done. But there's a catch. And the catch is that no one will be able to remember her the moment she leaves their field of vision. And she can't leave any permanent imprint on the world. So, for example, if she draws in in fog on the windowpane. The marks disappear behind her finger as she draws. She can't leave any any impressions at all. So she's free, but she's alone. And so the story goes along with her trying to find a loophole in the system and, and so on and so forth. She lives 300 years and you know, all this all this interesting stuff. And it's a great premise um, and turns into a really interesting plot. But the foundational assumption about the world is that the gods are out to get you. And it is up to you to game the system. Ready to go. That's it. That's the, that's really actually is all that the work has to offer. And I thought, well, this is this is is cotton candy flavored poison is what this is. And it leads you to look at the world in a way that is fundamentally desiccated. Although human, human, a human way. I, I remember playing a game. Because the gods are out to get me. No, I well, remember right. <laughs> playing a game when I was a kid. As are computers. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever play the game when you were kids of um, the three questions or no, the, the three wishes game where it, it, let's say you found an Aladdin's lamp. And oh, right. Three yes. wishes. And so what will you wish for? And as a child, you'd wish for more wishes. I can't. Yes. I got, I thought I was so brilliant in the same way that when I named my teddy bear, Ted E bear, I that, thought that was totally original. <laughs> so clever. But I, was, I was gaming the system is what I was yeah. doing. You know, you got to game the system. Three more wishes. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. The conversation has to be going somewhere, right? Yeah, that's the thing that makes it work in the first place and makes it interesting. You can't just constantly be questioning. Otherwise, right. there's no purpose to it. Uh, again, I have to credit my professor for saying the, the whole saying about it's not the destination, it's the journey. That, that there's something kind of fundamentally wrong with that. Because if you're not headed somewhere, 
then there's no reason to go anywhere in the first place. It's well, aimless, that's, I literally. think that's what I meant when uh, that's what my professor meant when he said the mind was meant to close on something. But right? what a, let me push back on both of you guys just for a minute because in the context of this Ishiguro novel that I just read, I think probably the the thrust of the story is it's better to remember than not. And the characters in the story have have had their long-term memories clouded over by a magical mist. And if a certain um, objective is achieved, the mist will clear and everybody will have their past again. And on the one hand, I think the thrust of the novel is that's better than living in denial. On the other hand, it's been a very peaceful world uh, during the time when this mist has settled on everyone's mind. And there's, there's been an absence of conflict. And so even though that may not be better than the alternative, there is a certain value to to living in denial of the past. And, and while it's true that I, that I think Ishiguro is, is kind of thrusting in one direction in terms of an answer, the story is not to give an answer. The story is only to pose the question and to say, I think the thematic heft of this story is to say, this is an important question. We should take this question into public policy and into art and culture and into thinking about our history and into education. And we should take this question with us. And so I guess what I'm saying is that does that qualify as a direction that he's going or is that literally just an open-ended question? The journey of which is the most important thing. I don't, I was talking more about individual readers, not necessarily the art itself. I agree that art's primary purpose is, is questioning just as, as readers, although like it's, it's both intention, right? We need to be headed somewhere. However, we have to be humble enough to say that we might not know where that somewhere is. Yes. That's okay. right. I was yes. going to say that, that those books that do, they self-consciously ask a good question, first of all, but then do posit some kind of answer at the end. I can swallow those so long as their answer is in an open hand, as, as much an open hand as I am coming to, to their work with. You know, they're acknowledging this question is primary. Here's an answer I have. Argue with me. You know, there's a humility to it in in the best books that I've read that I think it goes down easier. Okay, yeah. here's, this this might be a little bit of a gadfly-ish sort of a question, but do you get a pass if you're one of the greatest writers <laughs> of all time? Because some of, some of the classics are more or less thematically oriented sermons. You mean like Dickens and Tolstoy? Yeah, you like say, Dickens Here's my point, Tolstoy? open your mouth and shove it in and yeah, swallow exactly. it. Twain. <laughs> Yeah. And, and the list actually kind of goes on. Swallow Tolkien, it. for example, Tolkien is saying, hey, look, guys, the world is black and white. There's evil and there's good. And the good guys are going to win. Rejoice. That's what Tolkien is saying. And so I don't know. Do you get a pass? Is all of this? Is this a is this a rubric for evaluating current art or all art? That's such a good question. Make well, go. why, why would anybody write unless they had um, not only a question mind, but in mind, but some sort of a, a thought about that question. I mean, everybody, no matter what you're writing, whether it's a novel or a poem or a, a treatise, everybody has an idea that they begin with. Um, right. And if you're writing rhetoric, then it's a thesis, right? Um, if you're writing a novel, maybe it's an idea about friendship or an idea about romantic love or whatever. It's, it's a, it's a, a picture. Maybe it's a picture in your mind that you want to communicate. To Either somebody. way, a unique expression of a perspective. But yes, you've idea. got you've got an idea a that you want to communicate to other people, and it's about communication, no matter what you're writing, right? Right. 
Yeah, no, I think you're right. Uh, Megan, you might have had something to say along those lines too. Well, I was just thinking more about Tolstoy because we interact with him a lot these days in our How to Eat an Elephant <laughs> podcast. And he's like, I don't know, one of our buddies at this moment. And I think that he is an interesting combination of, of really didactic. He tells you what to think and makes you swallow it. And he says things stridently and many times. And in a couple different <laughs> prose forms. You missed, you missed at length. Well, in three languages. Well, that's, yeah. what I, that's what I mean by in a couple different prose forms. He tries it in a poem right. and he tries it in French and he tries it in Russian. And then he tells you again. And then he writes an essay, you know. Right. But at the same <laughs> yeah. time, there are these long stretches where he, I think you see behind the mask a little bit and he lets you in to see that even in the process of writing this work, he's, he's questioning himself. He's self-conscious. He's, I don't know, you get to be part of his creative process. And so on the one hand, his voice as an author is a little didactic. And on the other hand, as an artist, he's self-aware and letting you into his process. And that, I think it has to be both or else we wouldn't love him the way that we do. It, I think you're right. True of Dickens too, right? What about the gloriously ambiguous ending to Great Expectations? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I saw no shadow of parting with her. What does that what mean? Does that mean? <laughs> oh, that's what his readers wanted to know. They were Butthead. up in arms and wrote him letters saying, you have to change this ending. He actually did. He rewrote the ending. Did you know that? Yeah. Yeah. The, well, that that's line the rewritten is the rewritten ending. one. It was much worse before that. Much <laughs> significantly worse. Yeah, because Pip and Estelle, the answer was no, actually. Charles Dickens yeah. got it wrong the first time. And his reader said, got it no wrong. way, you can't do that. I'm but with that. That, just because he saw no shadow of parting with her doesn't mean that there wasn't there was no He could have been very surprised by the shadow of parting <laughs> that suddenly landed Emily, on him. how are you doing over there? Are you okay? Yeah. Who hurt you, Emily? All I'm saying is even these great uh, didactic authors, there's still tension in their works. No, that's yeah. for sure. Having something that you want to say that comes from a perspective doesn't disqualify you from presenting your work of art as an invitation to ponder and as a as as a, an expression that's framed in the universal questions. I was thinking of Melville in this connection too. So very clear on a on a good honest reading the direction the Melville is coming from and the kinds of things he wants to conclude about the great questions that Ahab and and Ishmael face. But the point of the novel is first and foremost the fact that they're facing them. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like mm, every great author is is self-consciously given their salvo. Here's my answer. Here's, well, here's my articulation of our question. And here is the answer that I've found. But they're also aware that they're at the table with a lot of other authors. And there's a there's just as much of an awareness of, of their community and the fact that other people might have different answers that makes them more fun to interact with. There's a humility, you know? So, okay, and this is, again, crazy because it's coming to me here in the moment. I didn't consider this yet all, so feel free to shoot her down. However, here's, here's what I'm, this causes me to wonder about our, our cultural moment presently. Answer this question from the perspective of the things that you see going on in the artistic world, in, in the cultural media right this minute. A human being is blank. A vote. A vote. Yeah. A human being is a political affiliation, a party affiliation. Hmm. And so and all self-actualized. media Yeah, all media is arranged around categorizing him and giving him his political preferences. Emily, say yours next. I wow. like yours too. Uh he's self-actualized. I can't I, I couldn't say self-actualized. It the second time. <laughs> Try it again. <laughs> 
He's an I try a little harder to actualize there, Emily. <laughs> See if you can actualize a person that can talk. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, brutal. <laughs> Leave that in. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm going to sleep on the couch oh, tonight. Man. I can feel it. <laughs> Woo. So, but you were saying self-actualized, right? Yes. Yes, I was. Expound. What do you mean? I mean, I think it's a great answer. Uh, you're the captain of your own destiny, be mm-hmm. that as it may. Unless, and- however, you get it wrong, right? Well, my word, did you tell us it had to be one word or did I just intuit that no. and decide? Mm-hmm. Okay. Cause I, I mean, that's fine if you want. I just The word that I word. thought of was you are your effort. Try harder. You know, that's that's what the culture is telling us these days anyway. And I think it just dovetails with what Emily was saying. I think I mean the same thing. But um, whether no matter what category, whether it be in the family that you have or the career that you have or your fitness or your health routines or whatever, uh, it's it's as much as you put in, that's what you'll get back. You know, your it will your result depends on your effort. So try harder. Just do it. You know, just do it. I just finished reading the newest um, Rick Reardon book for um, for young people. It's it's called uh, Daughter of the Deep. Uh, focuses focuses on uh, Nemo and Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, and um, it was so politicized in terms of the different characters. Um, you know, it, it was. Um, I felt like he was telling me what to think in terms of um, political worldviews. It was, it was, you are your political identity and every individual is their race, is their color, is their gender is, you know what I mean? Yeah. It it was, um, it was so front and center that I almost couldn't enjoy the story, sadly, Mm. because he writes a great story. His stories are real stem winders for kids. They're fun to read, very plot driven, you know, Mm -hmm. but inventive, but all of that layered over the top in such a way that it was clearly present for a reason. And I, I felt like um, it was pandering. And yeah, it, it got in the way. It got in the way of what could have been a good story. Did it offer you an so answer it, to what is a human being? What's a. Well, I think tacitly. Yeah. That does, right? Yeah. A human being is member of an a member of group. an identity, an identity group, a, a politically correct, a political active action group, or you know what I mean? Yeah. I found that very um, inhumane, minimizing, very min. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I will say this though: I think it's also pretty prevalent in our culture to say that a human being is one who is broken and one who suffers. Yeah. And they don't necessarily have a way to get around that. Self-actualization is the, the their answer to that. But I think that this moment is very aware of the weakness of yeah, humanity, agree. which is a good place to start, even That's if you, you continue on poorly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, what I was thinking is that there, all these questions are universal ones. But um, I do think that there are cultural moments where various ones of them get more airtime than others. Yeah. Yeah, that, that yeah. we're concerned with. And one of the ways to define a cultural moment is to talk about the question with which it is consumed. And so I, what, what is that question for, for today? What are we writing about more so than any of the other ones? I think we're starting to actually see a backlash against um, being the captains of our own fate. I think we're seeing more and more people find that they can't, even though they still believe that they should. And more people are talking about just the, the cognitive dissonance that results in the, the brokenness and the powerlessness. The culture of achievement. 
Yeah, a lot of people have been hurt by that, I think, and are starting to ask why. Mm. I think that the gender and race politics that I see pasted over Reardon's book um, is being answered in other juvenile fiction works. For example, I just read Eugene Yelchin's The Genius Under the Table that is like um, Solzhenitsyn light for kids, <laughs> if, you, if there is such a thing. Wow. It's great. Yeah. You guys should check it out. If there should out. be such a thing. He, <laughs> he grew up, it's, it's autobiographical, he grew up behind the Iron Curtain in Russia, and he's giving you a window into his childhood growing up in in an apartment that his family shared with many other families. They shared all the common spaces, and, and his immediate family had one room. Um, he was a genius under the table because he slept under the table. His parents slept on top of the table, his brother on two chairs and so on and so forth, you know? And, um, the, the glimpse that he gives you of a world that defines a human being on the basis of politics is, is really sobering and frightening but he does it in a, in a, well, it's social needs and light. It's for children, right? He's seeing through the eyes of a child. And so it's gentle. It's a gentler, um, view though. He agrees in every, in every instance with what Solzhenitsyn talks about in his Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. He, sh- he shows the same kind of um, dehumanization, brutalization. The issue of memory comes up in there. Um, What's this guy's name talks again? About his name is Eugene Yelchin, Y-E-L-C-H-I-N, and the book is called The Genius Under the Table. So anyway, I, I see for every one of those those books that defines the human being on the basis of their politics, I see someone else writing a story that answers that, that salvo with a, really, are you sure? Mm. Because then you're not human. Mm-hmm. That's that's dehumanizing. And I'm glad because I think that means that this is the conversation of our moment, but it is a conversation. It's, it's not a dialogue or it's, it's a dialogue. It's not a it's monologue. It's not a monologue. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I don't think there's anything to be frustrated or anxious or uh, despairing about to realize that, as Emily said, maybe in this cultural moment, everybody's starting to see that human humanity is essentially broken. Mm-hmm. I'm with you, Emily. I think that's, um, that's an encouraging sign, right? Because it's it's been true in every time and every place, and maybe the health of an age is uh, is is told by how well we know we know that about ourselves in that particular age. Well, friends, this has been such a pleasure. I've enjoyed talking with you all and enjoyed your thoughts over the last nine or ten episodes. Um, And thank you listeners for joining us on this trek. We hope you enjoyed these reflections and that you'll stay tuned for more of the same in the coming months until we meet again online in some fashion or form. Happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading. Happy Happy reading. reading, everybody. And that's a wrap. Thank you for joining us on this trek through some of the great questions of the literary canon. We hope these chats have been thought-provoking and have led to continuing conversation in your own corner of the world. This brings the inaugural season of the new and improved bibliophiles to a close, which means the Center for Lit crew and I will be enjoying a little time off. But never fear, we'll be back this summer with season two. Wondering what that second season will be about? Well, I'm glad you asked. Next season, we'll be chewing on a few film adaptations of beloved novels and sorting through what distinguishes a good adaptation from a poor one. We'll be celebrating some of our favorite bookish directors and examining the ways that film is a unique and yet still literary art form with its own set of rules for interpretation. 
We think it's going to be a lot of fun, and we're excited to invite you to join us. In the meantime, we hope you'll continue the conversation in the Bibliophiles Facebook group, or maybe even join us in the Pelican Society, where we meet regularly to discuss books and bookish topics throughout the year. If you like what you hear, be sure to follow Center for Lit on your favorite social media channels and explore our website, www.centerforlit.com, for more opportunities to participate in the great conversation. Until we meet again in the near future, my friends, happy reading. Happy reading.